Welcome to Photo Geek Weekly, episode 156, recorded on July 29th of 2021. Actually, that's not entirely true. On my side, it's July 29th. On my guest's side, it is currently July 30th because I have a very good friend of mine on the show, on this Photo Geekery show, where, of course, I'm your host, Don Kamarechka. Guest is usually a rotation, and this week we have Martin Bailey joining us all the way from Japan. Martin, how are you doing, man? I'm doing great. So, talking to you here from the future, which is always a fun thing to do. Um, <laughs> but Japan is not as advanced as we like to think we are, so we're not actually really in the future. Um, this is but, true. Well, yeah. I mean, uh, speed of light and all that relativity nonsense <laughs> out of the way. Uh, it's great to hear your voice again, uh, especially right now, because, uh, well, I mean, the Olympics are going on right now, and yeah. it's somewhat controversial. And I know I've a couple of photographer uh, friends uh, that I've seen notes on across Twitter said that they've gone there. And uh, what, what, what's the buzz about town? Because you're just outside of Tokyo, right? I'm, I'm actually, I'm in Tokyo, but I'm not in the th the core 23 wards, as they call them. I'm like 15, 20 minutes west of the, the core of Tokyo. Um, still very much in Tokyo. Um, but I, it's, a, it's, a, the buzz is pretty strange. It's, um, the, the people, you know, you've probably heard of things that some, uh, rumors or maybe even news stories about demos saying, you know, stop the Olympics and all of that. Um, there is, of course, the 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 fact that they have no people in the stands. That all of the people in the stands are um, people that are in some way uh, related to, not related as in a mother, father, but you know, like it, like a coach or a teammate, yeah, or yeah. yeah. So all of it's those people that are in the stands, and it, it, they actually the stands are fuller than I'd hoped because there's a lot of other now that they don't have to fight with the, the the regular hordes you know the, the judo judo um matches that i've been watching they the the budokan has got lots of people in the stands and it's what you'll notice is it's a lot of other judo um players that not players that's you know the athletes that right. are are sitting up in the stands watching other people's matches and because they can you know the stands are usually full of paying spectators um, it's the same with tennis. Um, there was the Djokovic and um, Nishikori match yesterday, and they there was stands had lots of other tennis players in there, and they were standing up and cheering. And it adds to the atmosphere. We got a little bit of atmosphere there, rather than just crickets, which was what I was fearing. Um, yeah. But to take a step back, you know, the the thing with the Olympics is is that it comes. 18 months after our first state of emergency, which is pretty much a joke. It's like, please stay indoors, but we can't make you do that, and, and you probably won't. Um, and the result is that, you know, the people have handled the, the coronavirus very well. They've, they've been, they wear masks. You know, there are photos from the Spain flu, um, which actually originated in the US, but for some reason was, was slapped on the, on the Spanish um, in the, the early 1900s in Japan. And everyone was wearing masks, even, even like over 100, well, around 100 years ago. Um, so there, there was, there's very little resistance to masks here. People wash their hands and goggle when you go home. And, and so the people's actions have kept them from having a really bad pandemic. But 
the other, the flip side of that is that the hospitals, there's only 25% of the hospitals here that are actually accepting corona patients. And so, or 25% of the beds that, you know, that are right, uh, right. set aside for, for corona patients. So the hospitals get really sort of clogged up, even with around, at the moment, we're in our highest num- daily numbers of, I think it was at 10,000 yesterday. Tokyo's in uh, late 2000s, 3000s now. And that's compared to a f- to. 10% of that just a few weeks ago. Part of that's because of the of the Olympics. Part of it is because the people are fed up of being put into a em- state of emergencies that are... Yeah, the state of emergency has to be uh, an acute thing, not a chronic thing, right? Right. And we've only had, if you look at a, a there's a state of emergency and then there's this thing that they call mangen boshi, which is like, it, it's just trying to stop it spreading, but it's like an even more half-assed version of the, of the <laughs> um, states of emergency that we have. And there's only been, there's been less than a month in the last year when we have not been in either of those states. And so, the gov- so I, I gotta, I gotta mm, ask, mm. um, uh, do people um, go out and just live their lives normally? Like, are you going out to restaurants and, no. and all of that type of thing? So one one of the ways that my wife and I relax is to go and sit in one of our nice local restaurants. And we haven't done that since January last year. Um, I haven't removed my mask in public for any reason, except for to take a, a drink of something in uh, 18 months, essentially. Um, it's a really interesting, and I'm much the same as you, Martin. Uh, it, it's a really interesting uh, mental play. You, you also mentioned that the, you know, we'll call it the 1918 flu, and not necessarily label it as the Spanish flu. Um, but uh, you mentioned photos mm-hmm. from that era, and you know how many uh, historical archives people have been digging through over the last well, 18 months or so mm. uh, to find photos of that flu, stuff that hadn't been seen before that wasn't necessarily uh, on the news cycle, people wearing masks, not wearing masks in defiance of the laws or in complete compliance and so on and so forth. Those photos uh, from 1918, 1920 are really important now. Mm. Uh and, and I feel like this has been, uh, th- this will be a really interesting time for street photographers mm. um, that uh, they've got this window, this era, this pandemic mask wearing era where there's a lot of stories to be told that when this inevitably happens again, might be a century down the road, who knows? I think um, it'll be about five years from now, probably. <laughs> let's hope not. Let's cross our fingers. But uh, but those images will uh, be pertinent and, and possibly even more valuable. Photography mm. plays a, a large part in our communication of history, mm. uh, possibly even more so than words because history can be rewritten. Mm. Um, but photographs are, well, so long as you can prove they haven't been doctored, mm. uh, are are a really important element mm. and especially true of the olympics right yeah, now yeah. uh because you know you have this wonderful olympic uh you know grounds and i don't know how big this uh all, all the different uh events and, and places are um or how spread around they are but it was built i'm sure a lot of it for just this purpose oh uh, yeah with the- these massive stands that are 
you said, you know, at least there's some activity in there, but it is such an interesting juxtaposition of purpose versus reality. And, mm. and I think that's going to uh, echo into the future. You know, uh, so there's a few things that I want to say before we move on uh, to the stories, but I... The first thing is, I mean, I don't know exactly. I think that the main stadium that they broke, they they killed, they killed the old one and built a new stadium. I believe it it um, can can sit around eighty thousand people or sixty thousand, something like that. It's a huge stadium, beautiful stadium. Um, it's where they did the um, the the opening ceremony. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's like thirty minutes from here by train. Um, the the first soccer match was held in a stadium that I could walk to in less than 30 minutes from here. Um, it's actually in the same town that I live. Um, so, I mean, it's spread around a little. Some of the things are way out in the sticks. Some are even in the, I think the marathon and some of the soccer uh, is also in Sapporo in Hokkaido. Um, so that's way, way away from Tokyo. Um, but anyway, so the other things I wanted to say, there's a few important things that I wanted to say because I I feel that there's some of the um, the athletes and sportsmen that are here are probably getting a, a slightly less warm reception than they would if this wasn't happening. They're trying to do, they're trying to keep them in a bubble and yeah. all of that. Um, I, in case any any of those people are uh, you know by any chance listening, we the Japan and I'm 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 actually I, I look like a British person because I was born there and I was raised there but I'm actually a Japanese citizen so when I say we I mean it with with all of my heart we we are welcoming everyone we would love it if we could just be normal um but these are not normal circumstances so the 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 other the last thing you know so basically we welcome everybody we wish that it was it was just a normal olympics and we could have a lot of fun um, but the, part of the reason for the cold shoulder from the from the people is because it's not a, rebe a rebellion against the Olympics. It's a rebellion against the government. The Japanese people have had enough and they are saying, okay, no, no, you can't hold the Olympics. And then it's, well, we're going to hold them anyway um, because Thomas Bach's going to force us to. He, he actually, he's one of the reasons as well. People don't like him anymore. Um, because he's he's basically sa said we're going to hold the Olympics. It doesn't matter what the Japanese government say. So that he took out a level of a level of um, responsibility that the Japanese wanted needed. Um, so a lot of the reason for the anti-Olympics and all of that is is simply it's anti-government. Um, I'll be very surprised if they get back in power again in October or wh whenever they held the next general election. Um, but it's, and, and that's it's not really to be necessarily uh, uh, political. I mean, uh, I in the same sense as uh, you know, a lot of people politicize, at least in the United States anyhow, mask wearing becomes a political statement one way or another. It, mm. It's not that kind of um, right. uproar uh, against the, the, the government. I mean, it's, um, I have no idea. How many political parties does Japan have? I know we're going there's, well off the rails here, but I'm curious. There's, there's a lot, but there's, there's two or three, well, maybe four or five main parties but what they do is they um they they merge together and they form little groups of parties so that they can get a certain amount of power but the main party that's in power now has been there for since the um the one time that the the other main party got in uh, was when we had the uh, nuclear power uh the, the the power station meltdown um after the earthquake in 2011 and yep. they promptly got kicked back out again because they didn't handle it 
quite as well as some people would have hoped, but they did actually do a much better job than people realise. Um, so it, it's it's a strange sort of thing, but there's 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 really two main parties. And it's interesting because in a crisis, um, there's far more things for anyone on either side of the political aisle uh, to point fingers at and say you did this wrong, mm. uh, because hindsight is is twenty twenty. Mm. Uh, and and so we've been sort of in that um, now a, almost a chronic crisis mode for so long, mm. and it's just wearing people out. And I don't want to dwell too much more on politics because we don't want to get too much into that mm. uh, on on this particular podcast, but. Um, I, I will say that uh, I'm excited because I'm getting my second dose of the vaccine tomorrow. Oh, and, brilliant. Uh, so that kind of makes me feel a little warm and fuzzy inside right now. Tomorrow, <laughs> I'll probably be groggy and sluggish. And uh, I, I had mine last Friday, uh, my second one. I actually, I had a 28.5 cent, uh, Celsius centigrade uh, temperature. Um, and I was I was knocked back for a full day the day after, um, but I actually I have felt like a million dollars since the Saturday. And the reason for this, I'm pretty sure I'm not a doctor, and none of this without, it was ever confirmed. But I believe in um, 2018, I think it will have been, or 2019, I got MERS, the the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome thing. That it's another Holy coronavirus. Cow. Um, yeah, I got, yeah. uh, I got we that. had SARS and then we had MERS and now we yeah. have COVID-19. But I, I got that too. directly from a camel in, um, in Morocco and I was knocked back. I was, I, it was the worst, it was worse than having my brain tumor removed, which was a pretty nasty experience. Um, and I, since then I've felt st- just slightly under the weather the whole time. And I think that the antibodies that I got from the second um, coronavirus vaccination have knocked all of that on the head. So I actually feel better now than I have done for three years. So I'm happy. Congrats. Uh, yeah, no, that's that's awesome. Well, I mean, it's not awesome that you got MERS, but I'm glad that you're finding answers or yeah. you know, uh, at least you have a hypothesis uh, yeah, yeah. In, in the works. Yeah. Um, Okay. Uh, Martin, thanks for being on the show. We got some great stories lined up here. Even though it is a relatively slow news week, it's always easy to drum up something to talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, story number one is a patent story. Um, if you've ever uh, taken a lens off of a mirrorless camera, whether it be micro four thirds or full frame or what have you, you've got a sensor staring right back at you, um, which is kind of, yeah, I don't want to say that it's unnerving. It's its somewhat uncomfortable because you don't want to damage the thing. Whereas in a traditional uh, digital SLR, the sensor would be behind a mirror. And uh, once that mirror flips up the shutter, I'm not sure if its default state is going to be closed and why it's always open on mirrorless cameras. Regardless, uh, every mirrorless camera that I've seen has that sensor just, you know, wide open uh, to any speck of dust or spit or, you know, rocks flying (laughs) at it. I don't know where you take your lenses off, but if it's at a windy beach, you know, some of these scenarios uh, could come in handy uh, or uh, be at least relevant. Canon has patent uh, or they have a patent application. Anyhow, it doesn't say that it's been granted Um, shows a shutter like barrier uh, mechanism for protecting mirrorless image sensors. And so this is like, I guess, a surrogate to that mirror that would be in the way uh, to protect the sensor. And it's just like this little shield thing that opens and closes with a pretty cool mechanism 
it's not linked to anything, uh, you know, digital and electronic. It's a purely mechanical connection from the way that I'm reading this um, that is triggered by rotating the lens to take it off or on from the camera mm. body mm. itself. Uh, and we've had mechanisms like that in previous generations of cameras way through the, the, the film era. That's not a, a new concept. But um, the fact that it is uh, possibly a way for Canon to be protecting their mirrorless cameras, which makes me think, number one, um, is this a problem? Are mirrorless camera sensors getting more damaged as a result of being more exposed, hence the necessity for this? Um, is it them just padding their patent portfolio and uh, making sure that they have this so other people can't get exactly what they want? And would it be possible to build something like this into the R-mount already without changing the spec too much and breaking things? Hmm. There, there's a few things that I need to tell you here. The first one is that with um, and I, I brought this up in my EOS R5 review. Um, if you go into the menus, setup menu four on an EOS R5, probably on the R6 as well, um, you've got an option to just, it's called, what is it? Um, let's just check. Uh, da, da, da. Shutter at shutdown, and you can have it closed or open. So whenever I turn off my camera, the shutter drops down. So I never see the sensor unless oh, I'm cool. cleaning it. Um, so that's, I mean, and that's Canon, the same people that have put this patent. Yeah, in. that's weird because it yeah. seems like they already have a solution at that point. Right. Um, so there, there was, when Canon released their mirrorless system, they said more than ever that you should turn off your camera before changing lenses. They've always said this. Um, and there were times when removing a lens with, with the camera on could cause problems, but it wasn't a huge problem. Um, but then in, when they started, when they released the R, the, the RF mount and everything, they said, no, you know, from now on, we actually really do want you to turn off your camera. Um, and this is, I think, partly related to this option. The, the strange thing is it's not on by default, or it wasn't when I first got my EOS R5. So I I found it as I normally do. I actually read the manual like most people. And you dig don't. through all the custom and, functions. <laughs> yeah. And and, yeah. I, and so I go through every menu item and I found it and I thought, oh well, that's a good idea. I'm just gonna have that closed. So that comes to your second point. In that state, I rarely have problems with dust on the sensor. And this is talking about uh, you know, I've I've used the camera, actually the R5. I haven't used it in very many places at all because we've been we've been locked down for most of the time since I've owned it. But the EOS R, the first mirrorless camera from Canon that I bought, I never really had problems. Um, so I I think that this is definitely part of the the reason for that. But I I haven't yeah I just haven't had a lot of huge issues. I, I don't find for some reason I find that the the dust when I do get it on there it's not a sticky dust. So usually I can just blow it off with a rocket blower. And um, so I don't have huge problems with dust on the EOS uh, line. The, you know, yeah, the, I, the I, line. I've got the rocket blower somewhere around here. I've got um, the sensor swabs. I use them from a company called Visible Dust um, mm, here yeah. in Canada. And they've got a liquid solution to clean and all that. But not everybody is comfortable cleaning their own camera sensor. Mm. Uh, and uh, if they get uh, dirty more frequently, 
then I, I know at least here in Canada, uh, Canon, you can send your camera directly back to them, but then mm. they're going to, you're going to be without it for a week or two. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and so that's uh, inconvenient to say the least. Mm. Uh, well, at, at the same time too, though, um, cleaning a camera, uh, a mirrorless camera is actually a lot easier than a traditional flapping mirror design because mm. in those cameras, you, the camera has to be on to clean the camera sensor. And you have to have a battery charge of at least 50 to 70%. It varies based on manufacturer. And it won't let you flip the mirror up to clean the camera sensor unless the battery is at that threshold. Mm. Um, and then there's always the risk of, okay, well, <laughs> some something happens and the battery door opens and the battery falls out or the battery just has a fault because you're using a third-party battery that just dies all of a sudden unexpectedly and everything just clunks back down while you've got a stick, a <laughs> uh, little swab. wet swab inside the camera. That's an, uh, Bad things would happen, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, I mean, do I want something like this in a camera? You know, I, I don't think it's necessary. I think that it would add complexity, which would add cost. Mm. Uh, and it's more moving parts and moving parts break. And so I think that this one, at least personally, I could do without. Um, mm. But Canon, you now have a patent in the works for it. So <laughs> do what you will. Um, but also keeping with uh, Canon and also with the the Olympics, Um Metadata from an Olympic photographer's photos suggests that the EOS R3, which we know is currently being tested, and I believe that there are photographers at the Olympics with this new camera model, um, will have a 24 megapixel sensor. And, you know, for, for fast action, for w whether it's wildlife or sports, for any scenario where you are in difficult and uncontrollable lighting and you want to have the maximum amount of dynamic range and high ISO performance and things like that, um, resolution is not the thing that you're after. You know, the best quality pixels are the best pixels. I, I shot with a 1DX Mark II for many years, uh, wore that camera out, uh, <laughs> And it was a 20 megapixel camera body. I'm now shooting with a Lumix S1R. It's 47 megapixels. And don't get me wrong, I love it. Um, but if I had, uh, you know, limit pushing ability at 24 megapixels, especially if, I don't know if Canon's ever going to do the high resolution mode features that, uh, that you know, a, a lot of other manufacturers are to quadruple the resolution of their um, images by moving the sensor around. Now that they have in-body image stabilizers, they can do it. Although, and I'm just kind of going off on a monologue stream of consciousness, um, that they would probably have to license a patent from either Olympus, Panasonic, Sony, or Fuji, because uh, that's been done you know, all the different ways already mm -hmm. by now. Anyhow, back to resolution. The story is about resolution. A new fact, uh, pseudo fact, we don't know if it's true or not, about the R3. What do you think, Martin? 24 megapixels? Um, would you be happy? Because I know you were an early adopter for the um, uh, the, the 5DS or the 5DSR, mm. I think, mm. uh, at 50 megapixels. C could mm. you go back? Could you cut that in half? No. Nah. <laughs> I <laughs> I um I was very interested in the R3. I I do like the the format and the weatherproofing of these cameras. Um I was a one series owner and user for many years. Um but I, I mean I've actually I spoke to a, a guy that goes out on fishing boats with um with the you know the fishermen here in, in Japan 
who had an old 1DS, I think it was, a Mark I, and he used to say he said that with his 70 to 200 L lens on it, he used to come back after a, a morning on choppy seas when the camera was covered in salt water and he hosed <laughs> his camera down. Is like his his response was, I've got a hose at my in my front door. I hose it down before I take it inside. And that's how robust these one series bodies are. And I'm sure that the R3 will be like that. But well, I'm not sure exactly quite as robust. Otherwise, well, why would they have it's got the articulated? Right? It's got the articulated LCD, right? It, it does have that. And I'm very curious because they have not done a full permanently gripped uh, camera uh, outside of the, the one series uh, ever. In, in ever. I mean, right. I can't even remember what the EOS three was. I think that was a smaller body as well with it a, was. an optional yeah. grip. I think that was that was just a regular I mean, that, that was just a small regular body. It wasn't a false. The one series are the only ones that have had this format from Canon. Um, so that's why I was interested in it. But, you know, one of the reasons why you want a camera like this is the frame rate. And, of course, you know, they're talking, I think, something ridiculous, like um, maybe up to 60 frames per second or Something like that. And, it's and, rumors and subject to change. And so, you know, there's yeah. a lot of up in the air stuff about that. But uh, again, if this camera doesn't break that barrier of whatever the previous model was in terms of frames per second, um, then people aren't really going to give it the attention that it, uh, well, I wouldn't deserve the attention uh, mm. at that point because that's what you need. Uh, and you have to make sure that you, you basically you never fill the buffer uh, so that you never miss a shot. You know, it, it, it's kind of a mission critical piece of equipment. And keeping that in mind, that frames per second, the data throughput and everything, it might be difficult to build around a sensor that is higher than 24 megapixels right now. But I, I can get like in even in the electronic uh, electronic shutter modes, the where it's not the fastest mode, I can still get 20 frames per second out of my EOS R5 with 47 megapixels. And for me, I can get 30 if I go to like the fastest mode. I think it was 30. Um, but I, if I can get that, I was shooting eagles, at, at catching fish out of the sea at the critical moment with like three frames per second with my 5DSRs. And and I had to retrain myself to do that, having been a one DX user for a while, and you know, getting the 11, 12 frames per second. Um, you you have to retrain yourself. But I I was doing that with three frames per second. I'm I still haven't been back with the R five and twenty frames per second again, but uh, because of the of the pandemic. But I. I'm happy if I could, you know, 40, 45 megapixels at 20 frames per second. That's for me, for pretty much everything I need to, I want to do, that's enough. So I'm not so, probably going to be getting an R3. So I'm curious then um, if, uh, yeah. and, and maybe it's just a complete deal breaker, but um, if there was one killer feature on the R3, while the camera still maintained 24 megapixels, that you would sacrifice the resolution to obtain? It, I think the camera already has pretty much everything that I would want from a, a one series format, and, you know, the, the form factor. I, I just can't see me dropping. I know what I do. I would always, even if I had it in my camera bag, I would always reach for the R5 for the higher resolution. And, um, you know, I mean, 
someone said a few years ago, I'm, I'm a pixel whore. And I don't know if I can say that on your show, but, <laughs> yeah, <it's> but, <laughs> but I, I am. I mean, I, I would much, I like, I also use the word pixel snob. I, I prefer to have higher resolution. To me, 24 megapixels feels like, I don't know, it's 2010 ish. It's not, they, they could have sacrificed a little bit of the, the higher frame rate and gave us, say, 30. If it was 30, I would have lived with that. 24, it's not a huge difference, but I, you know, and the thing is, here's the thing, and this is why it's okay, and this is why Canon are going this way. For news feeds and for newspapers and things where, where generally images, they, the, the, the photographer needs to get them into the feed and out into the world really quickly, smaller images work for them. And so at the Olympics and places where people just need to get the, the photo out quickly, they're going to be printed at relatively low resolution or used on a TV. So 4K is pretty much, you know, even TVs, there's, they're not actually broadcasting at 4K anyway, most of them. So yeah, I, well, or even if they say it's 4K, it gets compressed at some point in the stream down yeah. to 1080, and then they reinterpolate the data, which is just useless. Right. So, so, so for most of the time when sports and news where getting the actual critical moment is more important and getting that out into the world a smaller file helps you then i mean a lot of them send out just just send jpegs right so even even smaller so it's it works for people and i and i can i can understand the logic but personally i I like to have a larger file uh, more pixels to play with and more detail for me uh Mm. the critical features would be uh High resolution mode. So if Mm. I was doing a landscape image, I can get a 96 megapixel image from a 24 megapixel camera camera sensor. And I've been using that feature a lot um, on my S-series camera bodies. Uh, So I would want that. How do you process those photos? Do you have to go into some proprietary... No, okay. No, it's just so a, that, it's, that would be oh, the opens difference. Opens up in Lightroom. It's perfect. That would be the difference. Canon would make you use Digital Photo Professional to process those, <laughs> and that is their biggest, their biggest, the thing that holds Canon back more than anything else. They Forcing did that with the. To use yeah, okay, because that was what they did with the dual pixel uh, right. or uh, raw files, and, right? And nobody wants to use it. Yeah. Digital yeah. Photo well, Professional is a killer for any. You know, I want to keep my photos in raw. Or at the at the most, if I have to do a lot of pixel pushing, a photo, a Photoshop. So file. a high resolution file format that everybody could utilize. Right. That uh, would work. That that, that would work. Uh, also, sixteen uh, bit RAW. Uh, it has been forever since uh, medium format cameras have had sixteen bit RAW. Back when uh, Mamiya and Leaf were manufacturers, which are no more. Sixteen bit RAW was capable then. Mm. Why haven't we done it now? Yeah. Give me the extra data uh, because that would make the the pixels themselves. Uh, you just have more information to deal with. And mm. you know, if you are going for a uh, a lower resolution sensor, then the potential for higher dynamic range is there. And if you're putting it in a flagship product and it's brand new tech, and you really want to make a splash. Give me at least one stop of dynamic range above all competition, and those features all together would make me sacrifice resolution. Mm. At twenty-four megapixels, I imagine you probably because photo sites are going to be much bigger, so you probably will have around a, a stop of, of dynamic range over 
the R5 or the other, or the higher resolution oh, cameras. But, but, but I mean like in technological uh, evolution, that would be just naturally because it's a lower resolution flagship mm. product. But give me a mm. stop beyond that. Like, give me two stops, right? Yeah. And push the limits that <laughs> yeah. much farther. And a stop of dynamic range is not a simple thing. I mean, that's a, a one stop is a doubling or a, a halving, depending on which direction you're going. Mm. So, I mean, mm. that, that it's a lot to, to mm. ask for one, but I'm asking for two then, if that's your logic. <laughs> um, yeah. So why, uh, why wouldn't you? It's definitely something we need. You know, it's it's interesting to to see what this camera is doing and, and the fact that it's coming out at the Olympics right now. Every every Olympics, there's some new camera that's being tested, right? Mm. It wouldn't have been the R3 if the Olympics happened when they should have. Mm. Um, but everything has been delayed. I'm sure that flagship products from every manufacturer uh, are not exactly on the scheduled release targets uh, at the moment. But hey, the R3 is around the corner. We now know 24 megapixels. Take it or leave it. Uh, our commentary might not persuade you one way or the other, but you have it anyhow. <laughs> okay. Let's switch gears away from the tech and the gadgets and the patents and the new camera rumors into something a little bit more ethical. Mm. Uh, th this is an interesting one, and I I'm of two minds on this one. I, I really want to hear your opinions on it, uh, Martin. So I'm just going to read the headline, and mm. I want you to describe it and tell me what's up uh, the way that you, you feel about it. The headline of the story from Petapixel is, Woman upset, photo of her mourning uh, mother... Uh, photo of her mourning mother, a mourning uh, being sad, um, sold on Getty Images. Hmm. So, hmm. Yeah, I mean, this is, it's obviously without a model release, it's never going to be used commercially, but it it does mean that even editorially, you know, the editorial value of the, of the photo, I, I'm like you, I'm in two minds. I mean, it is a beautiful photo, but I think that these, the family, should have the right to request it to be taken down if they don't. You know, you, if he'd have gone and said, can I take your photo at this point, the moment would be missed, the serendipity would be gone, and, you know, the it would all just sort of, it wouldn't be the photo that it is. She would have And, and so th this is a photo uh, uh, of a, so uh, the, the headline uh, sentence is, a Canadian woman has raised concern after discovering that a photograph of her mother uh, mourning at a memorial site is now sold and licensed through Getty Images. Uh, and it shows a crying woman in front of some uh, mementos, wreaths, and and just um, offers of, of sort of goodwill uh, or just representations of the loss of lives of... If anybody hasn't been familiar with what's been happening in Canada, um, we're going to get slightly political again. I'm just going <laughs> to tell you the facts here. But... Um, Back over 100 years ago, uh, late 1800s, um, the Canadian government decided to create what was called residential schools. That means uh, it's not schools in residential areas, uh, as the name might imply. No, this is where uh, you would take the children from uh, Indigenous people and have a school where the schools, the children would reside in, away from their parents, away from their communities. So it is their residence. Um, and they were taught English and told to forget their language and their culture. And they were taught colonial ideals and manners and religion because it was run by the Catholic Church. Um, and these children, this was a 
it was basically cultural genocide. Um, but it was more than that because in many ways we're just finding out now it was actual genocide because these children were treated less than people, um, as evidenced this year by the discovery using uh, cutting edge ground penetrating radar technology um, that there are mass unmarked graves of children um, in some of these cases, I've seen as young as two years old um, that wow. are at the site of these residential schools. So it's a really powerful moment. Um, and the Indigenous community, I, I'd say all Canadians with a heart are mourning um, mm. that this happened. And it happened in living memory because the last residential school closed down in the 1990s. Mm. Um Although I'm sure that the crimes were not nearly as egregious uh, that far into the program. That aside, um, there's a lot of powerful moments that come from from this. And this is one of those moments mm. where you see this sorrow, this sadness, and you can capture that in a photograph. Um, but then to license it for $500 mm. uh, on Getty Images, 500 US, um, and... Uh, you know, the person in the photograph isn't going to see a penny of that. Mm. Uh, you know, they, they haven't signed off. Their, their name is, is not known, which I would actually argue. And I would probably lose the legal argument. But I would say that if this image had to be used editorially, I'd want to know the name of that woman. Right. Mm. Uh, because under uh, Canada has fair dealing laws um, that, you know, the, the subject matter that you're reporting on, uh, it has to be identified. Um, right. You can't just take something without identifying. But in this case, the identification would not be the person in the photograph. It would be the photographer creating the image. And so I would mm. lose that legal argument. Um, but ethically, I really I, I would hate to see anybody profiting off of this image aside from the woman in the photograph herself. And she would really not care about any profits on it. Uh, yeah. The, so, the family yeah. are asking for the, for the, uh, the funds raised from selling the image to be um, donated to the, you know, the first nations, some, some kind of charity for first nations people or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think that, yeah, they, it's it's fair enough that the guy shot the photo. I probably would have wanted a, a photo like this as well. It's it, it represents something, but I think as a as a piece of art and something that I would probably enjoy having as part of my photograph collection is is something that I, I can certainly appreciate. But if money is going to be made from something like this, I think. Well, like I said initially, I think that there should be a mechanism where the family can successfully just say we would prefer it if you don't use and sell this image, and then and then it gets taken down. You know, so I I don't think that they should be able to even win a court case where a person can can say I've been photographed. I don't like the fact that this is being sold. If you can't do something like giving you know giving the proceeds to charity. I would prefer you just take it down. Um, it's a slippery slope, though. And mm. I hate making a slippery slope argument, but let's play devil's advocate here. Um, <laughs> let's take a look at um, at any famous photo that includes a person in it, mm. uh, right? Um, uh, Napalm Girl, right? Tank yeah, Man. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know... Um, I've actually been the, to... The, I've, I've been to... Um, uh, 
a gallery showing the originals of those. That the, that's pretty powerful photo. The 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 girl and the vulture, or the vulture mm. and the little girl. However, they they phrase that one. The, these images are distressing. Let's mm. yeah put it politely. But um, and if somebody in the photograph or their family said, "Oh no." we mm. don't want that to be published in any way and it just mm. disappears. I don't necessarily think I'd be okay with that either. Mm. You know, it, it, it almost feels like something like this, if the courts were to rule on it, would rule it. Uh, and I'm just making up laws that I would like to have mm. at the moment, uh, mm. but rule it to say, okay, well, if there's a point of contention here, then it's in the public domain and anybody can, can use it. Right. Mm. Like it's um, the photographer that took the picture uh, would potentially lose the rights to it. But the caveat is that anybody can do anything with it mm. uh, and the family really can't stop it because profiting off of that moment with um, uh, sort of a, a backlash from we don't even know if the woman in it doesn't say that in the article it's the 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 daughter of the woman in the photograph mm. um, is upset. We don't know if that woman is actually upset that, that her photo mm. is being used yeah. like this so you know we we have some gaps in the knowledge here mm. but if i look through history some of those most impactful powerful yeah. moments uh they, they would be lost if you had a law stating that somebody could just claim that they shouldn't exist i i think it definitely shouldn't be just somebody i think the main even even the daughter of the of the person in the photo i think the person in the photo should have a say um but i mean you're right they there's there are certain situations where you've got to report on stuff and even if it causes a bit of distress it's you know like the the, the napalm girl um i yeah i i i see your point and i i'm not going to argue against that i think that it's it's definitely something that we that is it's a powerful um statement when you see some of those images and i think that the, in general it, you know you said it it's quite um you know, stressing to, to to see some of those images, but I think also we need to see that kind of image to realize how stupid war is and and how futile any of these conflicts are. And I, and I think that, that there's a generation. Every few generations, we get a generation that is distanced enough from war that they don't realize how futile it is and start another one. So, you know, I saw a uh, an art exhibition. Th these were mostly paintings, some mixed medium stuff, drawings, etc. Uh, not photographs, but they were um, artwork uh, that was created about the Holocaust mm. by Holocaust survivors uh, at the Royal War Museum in uh, in London. Mm. Uh, this was over a decade ago, but it was just chilling. Mm. You know, I I walked out of there like a changed person in mm. a way like it really punched you in the face mm. in mm. terms of what you were seeing and it's just an interpretation of mm. what these people went through uh as best as they could describe it i i don't know if i could do it again uh mm. i would want to because mm. you know th like you said uh, you get too distanced from these things and mm. uh and so on so these images i think they bring it back a little mm. bit absolutely and, yeah uh i uh, so we we need them but at the same time charging uh in canadian dollars as much as 575 dollars uh for the usage of this image 
uh, I think is a different kind of moral crime mm. that uh, isn't going to be addressed through any legal system here. Mm. Um, now, we're able to, to talk about it, of course, uh, and to give a link to this image on Petapixel, and Petapixel is hosting the image, and Petapixel did not have to pay the $575 because we're talking about the image itself and the fact that it's being sold in an editorial context, identifying all of the parties. This is news reporting. Mm. You always want to have that be free. Mm. Um, so in Canada, we call it fair dealing. In the United States, it's called fair use. Japan might have something similar. But uh, we've got these rules and this network of policies that are set up in order to protect things. And I think that that gets broken when these editorial images get sold like this on Getty rather than being commissioned. Say, if you're a photographer, I, I remember speaking with uh, Boris Spremo, uh, who uh, passed on a couple of years ago now, unfortunately, but he was one of the premier photojournalists in Canada. Um, and I've got a book of his, it's, it's remarkable. But um, some of the stories he would tell me about just having the camera always in the back of his car and listening to the police radio mm -hmm. and, uh, and seeing, you know, when a fire was going to break out and get to the scene to photograph the fire so that he could have that published in whatever newspaper he was working at the time. The newspaper owns those photographs then because, you know, he's an employee of them and he's working for them. And that's, I think that's a better relationship uh, to, to have because you're not paying like a one-off license for uh, a photo of a grieving person like a paparazzi uh i you know I, I don't know what the reform is but i just feel like there there needs to be a reform here mm. uh where you know things happen the right way but well, getty is course, not a company that does things the right way all the time right i mean so so getty and similar stock agencies commoditized images they they made most of them so inexpensive that all of yeah, the Getty magazines owns and newspapers, photo and, right? And, and well, yeah. all of the magazines and newspapers lost their image budget because now anyone can shoot a decent photo, and and most people give it to them for free. So there's no budget to buy images anymore. So they so then they cut all of their their staff photographers. Before you know it, you've got this this completely commoditized market of imagery. Every and that that opens it up to to very this sort of thing really and i mean and it's going to happen there's no, there was no way we were ever going to we were ever going to win that battle um but you know i think i mean the the companies like getty have have brought a lot of this onto themselves and and they're still profiting from it so well and getty's been profiting on a lot of things including taking public domain images and selling them mm. uh and and also taking public domain images and then going after people who are using them uh, with, you know, well, they can, it's public domain, they don't need a license for it, and mm. then demanding, uh, you know, some sort of copyright infringement settlement uh, <laughs> to Getty or a license to be paid or some such. Um, and so the, the company doesn't exactly have a clean track record. I just, mm. I want to bring this to everybody's attention, because I don't want to deal with getty i mean as a professional if they approached me and said we we want to license some of your work we want to have it available on on your platform mm. um in the past i had enough of a reason to say no and mm. now i have even more of a reason to say that i really don't want to be associated with these particular practices mm. doesn't mean they're going to go away it just that's my opinion of it yeah yeah mm. let's go on to something more positive uh <laughs> and, and that i wish that there was more of uh our final story um, actually, before we get into the final story, um, 
Martin, where can people find you online, all the stuff that you're up to, uh, your podcast? Uh, and I got a question about that podcast too, but mm. I'll save that for, for a minute. Where mm. are you? Where can people interact with you? Um, if just go to martinbaileyphotography.com and everything is linked in the menu that will appear at the top of the screen there. Um, everything I'm into. So, I mean, if, if you want to take a look at my blog and my, what is it, coming up on 750 episodes of, of blog posts with the, uh, the podcast that's, that's in there. Uh, all of my products, tours, workshops, prints, pretty much everything I'm up to is, is linked in that menu. MartinBaileyPhotography.com. Um, now, question. I uh, recently had uh, a another good friend of mine, Alan Attridge, on the show, who hosts the Two Hosers Photo Show. Um, love him and uh, and his uh, partner Adam Schwartz that uh, uh, that make that podcast happen. He's claiming he's claiming that his podcast is the longest running photography podcast without ever missing a week. So my question to mm. you is: Have you ever missed a week? Yeah. So, so okay. I'm, I'm the third, I'm the third longest running podcast period, but I can't claim without missing a week because there have been times when, say, for example, I did seven weeks, three, three voyages back to back to Antarctica in 2012. And I, I had to miss, um, some weeks there. Uh, quite often I do three week tours in Namibia. And although I sometimes put maybe one in one, um, in the feed, ready to release while I'm away. Usually, I I end up missing a week. So, regardless of when he started, if he's never missed a week, he's probably his claim is probably valid. <laughs> okay, we've we've put that to bed. Thank you, Martin. I appreciate <laughs> that. Uh, and some uh, brief news on, on my front for anybody that has purchased a copy of my book. If you don't already have it. It's in the mail. This week, I finished shipping out every single copy, unless there's a few uh, weird cases where a Kickstarter backer never provided me their address, and I'm chasing those down right now. Everything is in the mail, and it is such a huge weight off my shoulders. Uh, I still have a bunch of prints I need to, to do right now. I got to send out... Um, uh, people could have backed and purchased a, a print of the cover shot of the book uh, framed. And so that's the next task is to retool the whole studio uh, and do that. But if you haven't gotten a copy of the book, they ship the next day now because uh, mm -hmm. I've got some ready to go in the studio that I can slap a shipping label on and have it out the door. So <laughs> there's that. Congratulations um, on that. Thank you. Uh, it uh, it only took more than two months of constant <laughs> shipping. Yeah. So, so, I, I so maybe Don, maybe you could just give a message to those that did back the project but haven't received their book or don't receive it within the next week or so. Just check that they actually did give you their that your their, yes. their post. I, I think there's only about a dozen or two dozen yeah. people. If uh, you're one of those people, let Don know. <laughs> exactly. I got to get that book to you. Uh, I'll feel really good about it, and it's just sitting here waiting for the label. Uh, but uh, at the same time, uh, I was thinking, you know what? I, I gotta I gotta treat myself uh, a mm. little bit. Um, so, uh, and, and what I mean is. If you've spent, you know, more than a month, this has been more than two months doing the same monotonous thing, constantly trying mm. to rush as many books out the door as possible, your sanity starts to slip a little bit. So um, I've told myself, you know what, it's July still, 
I'm going to spend however long it takes to edit a gargantuan snowflake and Ooh. post that here in the summertime. And it, I don't know, it might take me eight hours uh, <laughs> and I'm in dad mode some days, so it's probably going to be longer than that. But hmm. before I finish doing all of my printing, uh, I'm, I'm going to get one really cool snowflake finished and published. And I'm just going to feel good about that, having that good. out in the public. And uh, I'll, I'll regain some sanity and I'll do a skill check to make sure that I... I still have the ability to, because those are really complex focus stacking mm. things to put those together. But uh, it'll feel good to be actually publishing new images again. Mm. And uh, I, I get, I'm not sure if it's the same for you, Martin, but when I when I publish something and I get not just positive feedback, like nice photograph, mm. uh, but when people engage actively in conversation about it or provide mm. some detailed feedback or even when somebody says, oh, I showed that to my uh, my son or my daughter and they were wow and all this and that. Um, I just, it, it lifts me up. Mm, um, mm. And uh, I actually want to do some more 3D work because I've had a lot of people receive the book and see the 3D glasses that are in it mm. and immediately find out where in the book to use them and then show <laughs> it to their kids yeah. uh, who run off with the book. Um, <laughs> and it's a heavy book. It's heavy. It's a four pound book. So, so uh, I, you know, I wanted to jump in there quickly and, and thank you once again for, it, at least in part, for getting me into the micro the micro photography. I'm, I'm calling it micro photography rather than micrography. Um, but I, having read your book and see, saw some of the things you were doing with microscope uh, objective lenses, um, although in a much different and a very a very sort of mad scientist Don Comerechka typical way, um, that got that got me thinking about getting my microscope, which led to my second microscope, and I so I now have a compound and a stereo microscope. I'm messing around with them with every every time I get a bit of free time, and that is has been my release over the last three months or so. So I wanted to quickly publicly thank you again for. Yeah, yeah, you you were like probably eighty percent of the decision to get into that. So I've re I appreciate that. Uh, you're welcome, and you know there's there's so much more to explore because especially with the cross polarized crystals, mm -hmm. uh, I'm sure you do the same thing as I do. You just kind of look up something that might work and try mm -hmm. it and see. And may maybe it does nothing. Uh, maybe, and I've. I actually found a, a chemical uh, called cysteine or cystine, mm. depending on um, if it's a single uh, molecule or two bound together. Um, it's actually, uh, for a project that I was trying to work on, I was trying to find um, uh, hexagonal crystals uh, that I could uh, photograph on video time-lapse growing um, mm. in, in a more convenient environment than, you know, a freezer in the cold with water, mm. which is also what makes hexagonal crystals. Mm. Um, so I sourced out a variety of these different uh, compounds that had it as a component. And uh, I, got, I think I got four different variants of this thing mm. and uh, it, some in hydrochloric acid, et cetera. But, uh, I, I couldn't get it to make hexagonal crystals. Mm -hmm. And, and then I, re I read some, I, like you're reading scholarly articles at this point right, about these right. crystals. And they're only writing these articles because that particular crystal can form in human urine uh, and cause, uh, uh, you know, uh, cause, you know, buildup of these crystals inside your body. And uh, probably pain when removing it from your body. 
Yes, exactly. And so, you know, you see pictures of them and then they, they do, especially when they're just kind of on a microscope slide and they're small, they do look kind of like these clusters of hexagons and it's kind of mm. neat. And they, they do mm. cross polarize a little bit. And so uh, I, I was digging into some of those details and some people were saying, well, if you mix it in with this thing or if you change the pH of it to be an extreme on either side, it's more water soluble. Mm-hmm. Water solubility is also dependent on temperature, but maybe it's not water that it should be soluble in. Maybe it has to be dissolved in some other solvent, um, isopropanol or methanol or acetone or et cetera. Um, mm. And so now I'm going through this list of of all of these different mad scientist chemically things <laughs> to try and figure out how I can create these hexagonal crystals uh, of something that uh, you really don't want to pass through your body <laughs> if you uh, have whatever imbalance that causes that. Mm. Um, so that's the path that it takes us on, right? Mm. Uh, you just keep experimenting and you never know what, what yeah. it's going to create. And I've 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 had a lot of fun. I mean, it, with the crystals, but also, I mean, this week, I, I actually released a podcast yesterday about the moral uh, dilemma of killing an insect to for a photograph. And I I've still struggled with with certain parts of this, but I actually, you know, I, I thought to myself this week, and this was follow following a, a a conversation with a friend who's who's got good good thoughts on this, but I I um. He's also someone that you know. I won't mention his name because I haven't got permission to do so. Um, but I, uh, I, I killed a fly. I think okay. So I, I would Murderer. a fly has never a fly has <laughs> never gotten out of my apart alive anyway. Usually they get. Their I've backside. killed many mosquitoes, right? right like exactly. I feel no remorse for that, <laughs> right? And that's one of the things that I mentioned as well. But you know, there is. I, I don't know where I draw the line yet. I'm I'm still struggling with the idea of going and fetching an ant because I would have to go into his realm and he wouldn't be necessarily coming to mine. But what if what if you found an ant in your house? Then I would probably put it in a jam jar, dip it in ninety percent alcohol, and then fold it, photograph it. Um, <laughs> so so that yeah, and that's probably what's going to happen. But for me, there's a there's there's a line somewhere. Anything bigger, I'm generally just finding stuff dead, and while it's still fresh, clean it up and photographing it. But anyway, that's that's a, a, we're going way off off topic here. There um, is no, t- but we're, it's, we're it's a lot out of about fun. photography. That that is the topic, uh, right? So that that that's fine by me. But uh, and I've actually we've got a bunch of ant traps around in in the house, or you know, the little ant poison bait things, because mm. in the springtime we had ants that showed up out of nowhere Mm. they've gone now thankfully Mm. i I guess our remediation was successful um but i would have no problem picking up one of those ants and say you you come into my house you uh you are mine uh (laughs) at that point you are mine (laughs) (laughs) or uh you know i and i i have uh you know distracted some ants outside for some of my images Mm. uh you know they're uh they kind of uh they they flourish on our peonies because peonies as a flower have extra floral mm. nectaries. Ants love the sweet nectar. That's why they also tend to aphids because aphids pee sugar mm. water, mm. which is disgusting, uh, <laughs> called honeydew. But anyhow, uh, and ants love that stuff. So they're protective of that. And if I would poke a twig at it, the mm. ant would just race up that twig mm. angry. Mm. Uh and then I just grab the other end of the twig and the ants running along and I put them down into the scene and he runs across the, and it works. Um, but <laughs> it's not very it's also, easy focus stacking though. Uh, yeah, that's, yeah, <laughs> there are challenges. Uh, yeah. 
but I also have my sunroom mm. where, uh, you know, the, the door sometimes gets left open or, you know, there's holes in the mm. screen or what have you. Bugs get in. Mm. They can't get out. And so mm. we've got this ledge that we grow plants on that's just full of dead bugs. Mm. Uh, you know, mostly flies, but uh, sometimes you get the odd mosquito or a strange wasp or mm. a bee mimic fly or something. And mm. uh, they could make some interesting subjects and they're right there for the taking. <laughs> I haven't yeah. done anything except for uh, maybe I would, leave a I would prefer for them to die themselves. But, you know, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a very complex subject. And I, I've sort it of is. thrown it out there and see what people say about it. But, um, yeah, I mean, the, so look at photographing um a flies and this is a tiny fly we're talking like four three millimeters or so long fly and photographing its eye at 60 times life size and stuff like that it's just fascinating um and and it's all possible because of me jumping into this a few months ago based on partly on reviewing your uh, your book so have you uh, uh, have you again. tried to photograph a micrometeorite yet a what a micrometeorite. I actually have a slide oh, here on my desk. You, I've I've has, tried I've tried to find some, but I've not I've not been able to find any yet. Um, I, I'll I might be able to hook you up. Uh, I mean, these aren't mine; they're on loan to me. But whoever loaned mm. them to me, that particular person might be willing to loan some to you if you're enthusiastic enough. And I think oh, that you brilliant. are. So, um, but uh, lots of subjects to to, to photograph mm. from the tiniest little extra. Uh, terrestrial uh, rocks to maybe uh, the beautiful night sky. And maybe yeah. you can even get paid to do it or at least get a nice vacation out of it. So, <laughs> what um, a segue. All right. Yeah, I try. I try. So, <laughs> this, uh, this next story uh, from Travel and Leisure. Uh, this Iceland hotel is offering one traveler a month long stay if they can photograph the Northern Lights. So, uh, with the peak Northern Lights, I'm just reading from the article here, peak Northern Lights season getting closer in Iceland, which is September through March, Hotel Ranga uh, is looking to showcase its spectacular location for viewing the natural phenomenon. The hotel is searching for its first ever official lights catcher. Uh, a photographer who will spend a month capturing photos and video of the night sky's colors in exchange for room and board. Now, there's no, I didn't find any agreement that states who owns the copyright to set images after the fact uh, or anything regards to usage uh, of the work. If, um, But, okay, I've done Northern Lights before, and, and I believe you have too, Martin. Yeah, um, yeah. in Iceland. You know, uh, it is beautiful. Uh, I was in the northern Yukon, but uh, still beautiful no matter where you can find them. Yeah. And w would you would you take this offer? Um, personally, no, because for a few reasons. The, the main one is that if I was going to be in Iceland to try and get more um, Northern Lights images, there are probably locations that are a little bit further north that I would prefer, but... Looking at the images that they have, if these are from their place, I mean, they seem to be, they're also saying on this in this offer that you get um, access to their Highlands Hotel as well, um, a second hotel of theirs. It's very remote, so, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, it's it's near to Reykjavik. It's it's not quite as remote as I would like to be. Um, it, it's It's appealing for sure. And I think that if the, like you said, if you have the rights to use the images, even though you give them the rights as well, um, then 
it's it's a it's a valuable offer. And if you're a, a photographer with time, a little bit of time, then fine. You know, a month in Iceland sounds great. And I, I would love to go back to Iceland. Um, it, it's a good opportunity. Um, personally, I probably wouldn't do it, partly because of the location, but also uh, really because to me, a month is is a long time, you know, and I, although, you know, you'd have the days you could, you're working remotely. I could spend days doing podcasts and, and developing software and doing all of the other things that I do and then, um, burn the candle at both ends and go out at night and do the, the, um, you know, so I, I could do it. Um, but it's not something that, that makes me say, Oh yeah, where's my, where's my passport? Yeah, I, I would. Uh, I'd have to turn myself into a, a night shift worker, basically sleep yeah. the day, stay up at night. And if there's no northern lights that night, then I just get regular work done. Mm. Um, and if there is a light show, then I would do all sorts of, you know, throw a fisheye lens and do a time lapse video. And and it just, mm. you know, you'd have so many opportunities to try yeah. everything and yeah. uh, and 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 see what would work. The the thing is, it's such an illustrious job. Um, that a lot of people with delusions of grandeur will look at this and think, oh yeah, I can do that. And then go up and be completely disappointed and disappoint possibly the hotel uh, as a result. Although I got a feeling that you know, some of the, the travel, especially with uh, you know pandemic restrictions, means that there's probably always going to be a you know a free room, um, mm. especially in some of the more remote locations. But uh, you know, if I didn't have a family. Right. Mm. Like if I didn't have a wife and a daughter and I was sort of uh, a nomad or I could be potentially, mm. uh, I would I would do this. I would mm. do this I, and not just um, uh, for them. Obviously, I can go between two particular locations, um, but I I would work in some deals where, OK, um, I, I have the ability to go to whatever unpronounceable waterfall uh, mm at night um, to do some mm-hmm. astro work that's nearby because these places would also be alluring to your customers. And yes, mm. you can use those images too. It just, it doesn't have to be the Northern Lights over your structure, right. Right? Well, o- over the buildings dur- themselves. During the day, you'd be free to do whatever you want, I imagine. And you can, you drive further north two hours from here, you get to Yoko Salon, you've got Cellulance Force, you've got Skoga Force, they're, they're beautiful falls. Um, so, I mean, it, it would open up a lot of opportunities. And, and if you wanted to go and photograph that whole area of coast, it, it'd be, it'd be tough to, to go, you know, to drive all the way along to Yokel Salon and then get back in the same day. Um, but it's doable. Um, and a lot of the places, they're so busy with tourists usually that it would, it, it can be a little bit tedious now. But I mean, I'm sure at the moment, Iceland's struggling as much as the rest of the world as far as getting people to actually visit because nobody can get on a plane. So, you know, or very few. So you never Uh, know. I mean, it could could work. It could be a good opportunity. Uh, And if it works out for them and they get some of the killer imagery um, that they're hoping for, then Mm. bonus, everybody gets a great experience. And I I don't know if this is a, um, a model that can apply to other scenarios, but... Uh, I, I definitely like the fact that I'm seeing it. It's the first time I've ever seen a company do something mm, quite like mm, this. Yeah. Uh, I'd like to see it more often. Yeah, uh, me I, too. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Okay. It's, so it's great. 
let's get into our picks of the week. Um, and uh, since you are my guest, uh, and I know what your pick is, and I want to know more, uh, <laughs> I want you to go first. Okay, thank you. So the my pick is the MBP Fine Art Border Tools. And if you were to figure out quickly what MBP is, it's not MacBook Pro, it's Martin Bailey Photography. So, so this I, is a very biased pick. Let's just put that right out there. <laughs> it's uh, selfish, and I apologize for that. But, but I, 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 you, you asked me whether or not you could do this, and I said absolutely because this looks really cool, and I want to learn more. So learn me. <laughs> so, so basically, a, a month ago, I finished a couple of months of development, um, mainly struggling with Adobe's new UXP um, API, and it's very young and full of holes um, but they have created a way for people to to make very um deeply integrated plugins and so i i used to have in 2013 i spent an afternoon and threw together a script or 10 uh, 12 scripts that added what I call fine art borders. And that's where you get a border of 10% of the height applied on all four edges, and then you move the image up slightly. And they were pretty successful. They sold, you know, I sold it quite a lot when I first put it out and I've continued to make a, sell a few units each month since. But what I did was I took that idea when I realized that Adobe had, had released this new API and I built it into something that is pretty much three times more. So it's it's going to resize your images for you, um, and it will then, based on the settings, a couple of sliders and things, um, it will automatically find out how much it needs to resize the image, add the border. You can change the width of the border, but also you can change the offset. So how far up the page you move, you can have it in the middle, you can have it below center or above center, Generally, I, I suggest slightly above center because it looks better as a fine art print, um, but it works for web images. There's a square option. If you're going to put it on Instagram, the, a, a square circle, a square circle, what an idiot, a square <laughs> frame with your, um, your image in the middle with a slight border looks very tasteful. Um, and all of the calculations are done for you. You just need to tell it how much of an offset and how wide the border is. But I went on, and that was that's the web size. There's also a finer art print module or a print module. And this now has, as from the next week, it'll have 29, but it's got 28 um, media sizes and 10 format uh, custom format slots, so you can basically create anything you want. All of these are saved when you restart Photoshop. So you, you can add for from like postcard right the way up to huge... Um, meter and a half prints and so they're they're all in there and then i added a watermark so at the moment in the um adobe exchange there's only graphical watermarks but you can add them to any way you want i add my logo and signature and stuff um but for the last couple of weeks i've been working on the latest update which will be submitted to adobe over the weekend and that's going to add textual watermarks so and you can add them together so you can add both a a graphical watermark and a textual watermark, and it, and they're all linked. So if once you've set it up, you can turn on the add watermark or add text on the on one of the resizing modules, and it will just go off and add the text and the watermark for you with one click. 
Um, and you can also save uh, automatically save when it's done. So if you wanted to work through a batch of images, uh, unfortunately, it doesn't support the, the whole API doesn't support um, recording in actions yet. Um, but the you know what you what you it's basically one button, and as soon as you as soon as that is available, I'll add it. Um, but it, it's pretty cool. It, it works really well. The textual, um, the new textual ones will be released over the next week after the Adobe review, um, and that's working pretty well as well. Working very well as well. So all very good. Cool stuff. I'm I'm, I'm looking at this, and it, it looks like it makes things easier. You know, Lightroom has some of this functionality, but I never really liked the way that it worked. Mm. Um, and yes, a lot of this stuff you can create as an action in Photoshop, but I hate actions in Photoshop. Um, you know, it, it, it's notoriously arcane to edit them and change exactly mm. what the end results are. Um, and if I can, if I can simplify my workflow. And, and make mm. it look good. And, and I'm looking at examples uh, right now here, and, and, and there'll be a link um, in the show notes at photogeekweekly.com to this, both on your website uh, and uh, the plugin details page from Adobe. Uh, you know, I have spent a lot of money to save minutes of time. Uh, in various parts of, of my workflow. Now, I will admit, I don't often publish images with borders, but this could also be useful, especially if you're printing something and you want to have the mat on the paper itself mm. uh, for a nice, elegant look, and, and it looks like you can accomplish that. I, you know, maybe I should do more of this too, Martin, because you mentioned Instagram. Um, I often just kind of resize the image on Instagram, and then mm. it, it shows in the little thumbnail view just a square version of what could be a very horizontal or vertical image. Mm. Uh, and it's it's just like from the from the outset, it's destroying my composition before somebody clicks on it. Mm. Uh, and so this would be an easy way, uh, again, to, uh, to compensate for that. Um, and it looks eloquently done. Uh, again, like ch check it out. Ch check, see what these buttons and, and knobs and these uh, settings are. Um, they're simple. They're easy yeah. to, 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 to work through. And uh, thank you for making this tool for photographers of all stripes. No, not at all. Thank you for allowing me to uh, to talk about it today. It's it's twenty six bucks, by the way. So it's it's yes. not. Yeah. I have spent like when I say I spent a lot more on little things. Uh, I don't know of many photographic things that I buy that are less than twenty six dollars. So um, it's an expensive hobby. But thank you for making this portion of it slightly more affordable. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. um, thank you. My, my pick is considerably more expensive for something that I rarely use, but I recently re-discovered uh, it. Um, I had bought the Moment Macro lens um, because I wanted to throw at least one cell phone macro image uh, in, in my book just to mm. you know show that it's possible and, and that this mm. is an avenue. We're not really going to explore that much in this book, but it, that it is a viable thing. Um, and uh, I, I bought the Moment case for my for my iPhone 12. And uh, I was looking at it the other day and I thought, you know what? I haven't put that lens on here in a while. Uh, and I had to just go mow the lawn. But before I did, I found some really tiny flowers that I was about to obliterate out of existence on the lawn. <laughs> and and I figured, well, let's just go take a picture of, of these things. And mm. uh, you know what? It, it turned out really well. Um, mm. And it's a bit of a misnomer because it says it's a macro 10x lens. It is not. Mm. Um, they're completely misusing the term 10x. It's not mm. a 10 to 1 magnification on a sensor that small. That would be quite the feat. Mm. And it depends on which 
uh, you know, phone you attach it to exactly how much magnification it's actually going to achieve. They're assuming mm. it increases it by 10 times, but that's dependent on factors such as focal length and optical design that mm. are not accounted for. They call it the 10 X lens, whatever. It's good. It works. <laughs> it's, uh, and I've tried a few of these, uh, and this has been the best one. Really easy to attach onto the back of the phone case if you have a moment phone case, which you kind of need to have to use it. Um, normally priced at $130 US, currently $116.99. And, uh, you know, I've, uh, I actually just bought another macro lens recently because uh, I am me. And it was the. <laughs> Uh, it's the Minolta 3X to 1X macro lens from, I think, circa 1990 or so. Mm. And uh, I've, I haven't had a chance to test it yet. My focus was sh shipping books. But um, I actually want to do a comparison between a 1990s high magnification macro lens and a cell phone macro lens and try to kind of shoot the same subject with both of them and just, just see what's up. Mm. Uh, and, and have some fun in, in that comparison. But uh, for your phone to enjoy photography on a different scale moment does have a number of uh, add-on lenses. Mm. Uh, their macro lens, I think, is something special. So it gets my recommendation as a pick of the week for Very this cool. week. Um, all right. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode uh martinbaileyphotography.com is where you can find martin bailey obviously um and uh i hope to have you as a guest back on this podcast again at some point soon oh, well i appreciate it and i always it's always a lot of fun talking done uh, it's it's always fun uh great to geek out with you martin and thanks you to everybody that was listening to this podcast uh 156 episodes in we are not going to be stopping anytime soon um i still i'm going to use my adjusted tagline but that's going to be changing two weeks post vaccine but for now it is still it's time to stay in and shoot <laughs> <laughs>